It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 What's going on? Hey, everyone on Facebook who might trail in and out. This is Mike's Up on Ohm. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. And uh, yeah, today I'm here in the studio. I'm very proud of myself. I'm very happy to be here uh, in the studio. Uh, today's topic, let me just jump into it, um, is uh, white culture here in Charleston, or rather culture here in Charleston and the white gaze. Um but quite honestly, the culture here is driven largely uh, by the dominant culture. Uh, so anyway, let me just jump into it. So I'm Mika Gadsden. Every week I talk about things centered around the black experience here in Charleston. Um, I myself identify as a Gullah Geechee descendant. Um, so I do talk about some things in and around Gullah culture. Last week I recorded a show that actually was aired um, at the four o'clock hour, and it was regarding um, the criminalization of black youth, specifically black Gullah youth uh, downtown. We know the issues in and around uh, the Palmetto Rose uh, it, crafters, the artisans who make that, and how they've been harassed by the police. We understand that this is just emblematic of a problem that has persisted ever since the first slave ship dropped off the enslaved Africans, my ancestors here. And so the criminal, the criminalization of black culture and the, the marginalization of black culture has actually been, um, is pervasive within the culture here in, um, in Charleston. Hey, Don Marco. Hey, Don on Facebook is watching. Don, I would love to get you in the studio to talk about your new album and your, your just your new stuff. I don't even want to get into it, but Don, Don Merkel is a real one out there. Um, so today what I wanted to do, and I hope folks can hear me on Facebook um, but I, I, what I want to do is just talk about one specific issue. I like to pull things from um, media. I like to pull things from our local uh, headlines and incorporate that. I like to keep the show as local as possible um, because I know you guys are getting so inundated by the news in the uh, national news cycle. Um, but before I get local, I want to just say send a shout-out to all those right now dealing with the um, – the reality of impending war or escalating war-like behavior. I don't know quite how to characterize it, um, but I'm being very serious when I say my, my heart and my mind is just uh, focused on the families that are going to be impacted by what's going on currently in the Middle East. Um, it does impact very real people here in Charleston, throughout South Carolina, throughout the country, of course, throughout the world. So um, I just want to just say hold your head to those all people serving, uh, heading over there to the Middle East. Uh, my heart is with you because we, we know specifically down here in the South, a lot of our poor people um, often, you you know, they join the military to, as a way out, right? A way out of, of, of their current circumstance. So um, I know that this, you know, what's going on right now is going to impact those on the margins the most. So um, shout out to those. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to hold space for those folks. But let me get back to, to today's topic, the white gays. Uh, and culture here. So this week, um, someone sent me just a couple of days ago. Someone sent me, as they do, as you all do, keep sending me your stuff. Keep sending me your headlines and, and things that go under the radar. But someone sent send me sent me the Charleston Home and Designs new cover for their winter issue. Um, 
if for those who don't know, Charleston Home and Design is it, usually it's typically a marketing vehicle. You'll see a lot of these type of magazines come out of the um, the Visitors Bureau and whatnot, a lot of ads. But basically, every year, Charleston Home and Design does have a huge trade show. I've, I've been a fan of it. Um, hey, Katie. Um, I've been a fan of, of the trade show. I've frequented it. It's beautiful homes featured here throughout Charleston. And so every month, I guess, they have a certain theme. But they typically feature these beautifully, like, appointed homes uh, in Charleston. Um, and it's a way, to, of, co- of course, for, for uh, real estate, the real estate industry here to showcase some of these um, great homes, these great-looking homes. So this month they chose to come to my uh, hometown of Wadmalaw, uh, well, I call home right now, uh, Wadmalaw Island, South Carolina, and they and they chose to to um, not just uplift but give the celebrity treatment to the Bolt family. Um, for those who don't know, I've already dedicated an entire show to saving Wadmalaw Island. You can find those episode that episode on either Mixcloud from Ohm or on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Uh, and so, basically, the Bolt family, uh, Tori and Seth are two individuals who are um, who set up a, a number of like I guess income properties uh, very like um, just uh, they're usually like these tree houses they have these tree houses in another area of South Carolina but they chose to come to Wadmalaw initially they told our community that they were only going to do a modest um, you know modest construction some rentals that were in line with what we already had in place ordinance wise uh, long story short we found them to be completely fraudulent. They tried to circumnavigate the laws and have the island rezoned. As it stands, Wadmalaw Island is the last natural undeveloped uh, island in this area in Charleston County. And so we know that, um, you know, that would have meant gentrification. That would have meant, hey, Denver, that would have meant, um, uh, you know, changes. We would have had city water. Our taxes would go up. Home People would be displaced. Um, a number of issues, environmental issues. And so my community, the residents of Wadmalaw Island and others in Johns Island and other areas banded together, stood up and stave, they, I'm trying to say stave off. They were able to stave off um, the, the bolts and um, basically expose them, expose their, their, their fraudulent behavior. And I was, I was, I was just mystified by how, far they went that i mean they did so many different cunning things and again it's all documented in that prior episode saving wadmalaw island and also you just google tory and seth bolt wadmalaw island you'll find all the news clips and local coverage but what happened after the show after we stood up and and the the county officials uh ruled on our side and they withdrew their permit initially um we found you know the county kept going and, and revoked other permits that they had in place to do short-term rentals so it wouldn't stop the bolts just wouldn't stop adding insult to injury they kept reviving the issue and kept talking about it online um of course my neighbors are very vigilant and they are very dogged and determined to keep an eye on them i don't fault them for that um and so you know the, the the bolts could not move without us knowing what was going on and um, now we see the Charleston Home and, and uh, Design Magazine chose to feature them in their opulent tree houses, which are just like elevated houses. They're not really tree houses. They're elevated on stilts. Um, but, you know, this, this cover is gorgeous. I'll give it to them. Um, they're selling you Southern, um, they're selling you Southern, 
uh, someone said Gone with the Wind in the comment section on Facebook. They're selling you Charleston, the, the Charleston that people want you to, want to see. They're selling you opulence and, and decadence and wholesomeness because, you know, Seth is a member of a rock band and, and all of that is fugazi. All of that is fraudulent. To, you know, that's my jersey coming out. You know, all of that is whack and corny and, it, and it's not true. It's all PR. And we know for a fact that this saga with them trying to develop Guatemala Island, trying to have the island rezoned, we know that this saga has been going on for over a year. So there's no way that the Charleston Home and Magazine, Charleston Home and Design Magazine would not have known about the issue, the controversy, and the, the laws that they were, I don't want to say they broke the laws explicitly, but I know that they definitely um they definitely did things that way. So they did things that led to the county to invoke certain, uh, you know, punishments and whatnot. So whatever. And so with that said, um, what what I kind of wrestled with is not just the boat issue, right? Luxury eco retreats, four hundred dollars a night. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, um, for giving me the the verbiage. Um, but so why am I bringing this up? I'm not going to rehash the whole topic, right? But what, I'm, what I want to question is why are these uh, type of folk the ones that we often lift up in some of our more beautiful publications? Why are these depictions that are not even accurate um, that erase a whole people? Like Wadmalaw looks, those tree houses are not indigenous to anything that ever was on Wadmalaw, right? So they're selling a fantasy. They're selling a concoction, um, some concocted uh, image. And how is that able to be propped up? Why are we feeding an appetite or creating an appetite for this type of um, this type of, of, of reality when it doesn't exist? Especially at a time when we know that Charleston is becoming a place where it's harder and harder to live because it's just not affordable, it's not sustainable. So today I, what I wanted to do is talk about the, the, the need also for more culture drivers that don't look like the bolts, right? And I understand that one of the one of the couple, I don't know if it's Seth or or Tori, they identify as as indigenous. I don't want to go into that. I don't want to say who's not and who is the you know who is and who's not. Um, but what I would say is that they're they're white passing, and that's a phrase that you know look that up. They're white passing, so they're able to navigate in white circles um, and with white wealth and, and things of that nature. And what that means is that they're able to participate uh, in a culture where others are excluded as well. And so I want to question why Charleston continues to prop up the people like the Bolts, who are emblematic of a problem here in Charleston, and why don't they seek out the more complicated or complex identities that make Charleston such a beautiful place, even if they're not as um, appetizing, but they're real, they're authentic. People come here because they want a real Charleston. They don't want this um, Confederate Disneyland that, that the powers that be are hell-bent on creating. They want a real Charleston. They want to taste, not just, you know, they don't want to just taste gullible. They want to experience it. They, they want to see it. They want the truth. And uh, shout out to those who are coming down um, tourists who have had their eyes opened and realized that the plantation fantasy um, is a myth and it's a harmful myth that erases the pain um, and the um, the history and experience of the enslaved Africans, my ancestors. Thank God uh, for uh, plantations like um, the one on John, uh, J- on James Island. Um, well, oh my goodness, I just I just had a little brain freeze. Oh, McLeod. 
McLeod Plantation, one of the only ones that centered the experience of the enslaved. Um, you know, thank God for, for places like that who keep it real. Um, so I want to beg the question, why don't we have more representation, more diversity driving the culture, uh, put, uh, propping up other images so that they make the cover of all of these promotional magazines. Uh, the Wildlife Magazine, SC Wildlife also, thank you, Denver, SC Wildlife also um, lifted up uh, the, 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 the bolts. And they knew, they knew, they knew the controversy. So, and this is not, like, I guess some people are saying, well, what does race have to do with the whole Wamala thing? Well, Wamala is still hanging on by a thread, predominantly brown and black, right? Not only that, it has a storied civil rights history. It has a huge indigenous history. Um, my, just the, the other day, my dad was remarking about how before the tea plantation actually grew tea, he used to work it as a boy. His whole family did. His mother, my grandmother actually worked the tea plantation and it grew all these other root vegetables and whatnot and so like so knowing that that history existed that that my father has a connection to that land that's just a few doors down from where I currently reside with them it, it's important I want to see that I want to see that on the cover of a magazine I want to see the black farmers I want to see indigenous folk enjoying Charleston I want to see that propped up I want to see the homes of real people not just these mega McMansions that pop up on Daniel Island no shade no you know I got friends out there but we know what time it is right I want to see real Charleston depicted and there are beautifully appointed homes that are modest in size that uh, that are home to black people and brown people and people who speak Spanish and Portuguese, all of that. There's, that's out here, but we don't have people driving the culture. We don't have black people driving the culture. We don't have brown people driving the culture. So I'm here to just ask that question, like, where is that? So what? Um, I'm going to kind of keep it real with people. Um, so I get in trouble a little bit on Twitter, just a little bit. I don't have a big following, so it's not that big of a deal. Um, but I push back on a local critic, um, a cultural critic. It's not personal. It was never personal. will never be personal. I think this person is a, a capable writer. But Maura Hogan uh, wrote a piece back in September that I had a visceral reaction to. The piece was called The Winds Are Shifting in Charleston. Can We Still Enjoy Gershwin's Summertime? So she um, begged the question, because of the complicated nature of Porgy and Bess and the musical, um, the musical acts, uh, or rather the musical selections throughout uh, Porgy and Bess and how it originated with, you know, Hayward first wrote, wrote Porgy and then it was turned into an orchestra and so on and so forth. And it's been on Broadway as well. It's been reinterpreted in so many different ways. But um, what has been um, what has been real has been um, Porgy and Bess is very complicated. And the depictions of black folk were written by white men and they're not always flattering and they're not always accurate. So the question that someone like me who I'm not a cultural critic, but I, I'm someone who has an affinity for it. The question I have is, well, she asked, the, well, she asked the question, can we still enjoy Gershwin? And that's that to me, that question was um, is a question I think a lot of Charleston, a lot of white Charlestonians ask. They know when something like slavery or, or going to plantations or having weddings on plantations, they know that there's something icky about it. But they don't linger on that question long enough to really e evaluate whether or not it's worth it. So I do commend Moore for posing the question, but I felt like the piece as I read it basically served to assuage white people who had white guilt about the piece. 
She sought out uh, black people, prominent black people in the arts world who were more like, eh, just do it. You know, it's not that, you know, it, it, it's complicated, but it's, it's okay. And, and this piece, you know, um, it created a lot of roles and, and created a lot of stars on Broadway. And that's true. I'm not saying don't perform it. Hell, um, Sam Cooke did the did Summertime. There's so many black artists, I can't even name, um, that have reimagined or reinterpreted songs from that piece. But my question is, um, my question is, why do we not linger long enough to say, you know what, it might not be worth it? How about we find something written by uh, an indigenous woman? Why not we? Fi- why not find something written by, um, you know, black queer folk? That's my question. Why is it always, well, we know it's icky, but can we still enjoy it? And then create a piece that pretty much just lets you off the hook because at least you ask the question. No, asking the question is not enough. We need to, and, and so what, what Maura's piece, and again, this is not personal. I think Maura is a lovely woman. I, I actually spoke with her before. Um, I think she's done great work. I read her columns as, as often as I can. But what I want to hear is I want to hear black and brown folk push back on like, yo, there's so much more in the canon than just these white, um, just the same old names and the same old songs and these standards. The canon is so devoid of diversity here in Charleston that we go back to the same old things. Shout out to Spoleto. I think Spoleto's really um, doing, trying to push the envelope a little bit more. It started a few years ago with their Porgy and Bess reinterpretation which I commend them for because um, it's, a, it's a piece that's based, it's, it, that's inspired by Charleston, so I get it. But this year I'm really excited about some of their other work, and I'll talk about that in, a, in another show. Hopefully I'll have someone from Spoleto who's working on diversity either on the show or in the studio. Um, but um, I just want to see more stories there. And also when it comes to black folk, our stories don't just start at slavery. <laughs> our stories don't just start at our pain and our oppression. Um, you can start there, but but that's always what happens. Our stories start way before that. We are people before we were enslaved. Um, we were mathematicians. We were we were inventors. We were scientists. We were theorists. We were environmentalists. Um, we were all that, as with any other race of people, before we were enslaved. So um, I would love for our stories, uh, for more stories to be told uh, that don't just pick up where you know where we're in bondage. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, this is Miked Up on Ohm. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. We're talking about culture here in Charleston and the white gaze. Thank you, Denver. Thank Hey, Fernando. Um, uh, I'm talking about that because of the, um, the Charleston uh, Home and Design Magazine's choice, their editorial decision, their blatant and flagrant decision to feature Tori and Seth Bolt, uh, a couple on Wadmalaw Island, who have been fraudulent, who have broken laws, who have bent laws, who have acted out, who have been disgraced. It's in the press. It's in the papers, on the news. It's, it, this is not old history. This is recent news. Um, they've been disgraced, but they got the celebrity treatment, and it made me question, why do we prop up uh, um, one group of people over another? I, you know, I, I'm, for, I'm not trying to conflate issues. I just want, I just want to bring this up. You know, when the Walter Scott, uh, mass, uh, when the Walter Scott murder occurred, a lot of people questioned his decision on why he ran and they came up with all these things and they found out that he was back and he was in the rears with child support and they found all these things to disparage this man and basically all the things that he did wrong in some people's eyes justified him being murdered and shot in the back and the, and, and the cop lying about it. it like 
This guy having, you know, a past that was checkered, that actually, you know, was justification for him to die because he ran. Why am, why am I bringing that up? It's, there's something about the refusal to grant um, a marginalized people their humanity when, when things occur. And, again, I'm not trying to be gross in this, and I'm not trying to compare Walter Scott's uh, murder uh, to anything happening in the art, the art and culture world here. But what I'm saying is that there is a reflexive tendency here in Charleston to remove the humanity of black and brown people in order to pave way for gentrification, to either to, to excuse away why a little boy selling a $2 rose gets jacked up. Andrea, you're saying money drives the culture here in Charleston. If you want it to be any of those magazines, you got to pay money. You're right. They're promotional, they're promotional vehicles. I'm reading from... From, um, from Facebook. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I wish I could read more. I'm just trying to go live so I could be more interactive. Someone said I don't promote my own content enough. But I'm going to read all these comments later and probably screenshot them and, and share them on Instagram and Twitter where I'm a little bit more active. Um, but, yeah, so so we have a way of, of dehumanizing other people to make way and justify, um, you know, the dominant culture's you know, brash movements. And even with the, um, even with the Seth and Tory Bolt, uh, uh, cover, the magazine chose to double down and defend the decision. They've yet to even issue an apology or even address the controversy. And by doing that, um, which it's just blazing, it's just flagrant, but they're not alone. It's the same as the, as the, as the surf shop. I, I, um, I talked about last week. Las Olas. They didn't, they didn't write me and tell me, you know what? We messed up. We goofed up. When we have a loss prevention issue, we should have followed the protocol. Loss Olas didn't reach out and say, you know what, it was bad. It was bad business on our end to to call a little boy the f word, even if he, you know, was caught red-handed. We shouldn't have handled it that way. We shouldn't have used social. We shouldn't have weaponized social media. So, what is it about, you know, what is it about the culture here in in Charleston? that makes that kind of stuff happen so often to where you can remove the humanity of a, of a, a, a child that looked no older than eight years old, no cap, like completely. And so I want to ask that. I want to continue to ask that question, but I'm also going to play clips. So I'm a, I'm going to say bye on Facebook live. Um, and thank you. Hey, look at my friend Becky from Philly. Hey, Becky. <laughs> um, this is Mika Gadsden. I'm mic'd up on OM Radio. This is your weekly um, hour of activist radio. I center black issues. I center black people. And um, this is a radio show that is devoid of the, it's just, we get away from the white gaze. And I'm actually going to play, let me play this. So basically the white gaze, for you guys that are asking, that's like we do, when things are done to, um, to satiate white ta- the dominant culture's taste and interest. Um, if someone says, oh, Tamika, you're anti-white people, I'm not anti-white people, I'm anti-whiteness, the construct that creates race and, and that type of um, that type of hierarchy that we have in society, I'm anti-whiteness. I am not anti-white people, just to clarify. So when I talk about the white gaze, I'm talking about how white supremacy influences how we create culture and things of that nature to, um, to conform to white tastes and appetites. Um, and erase in that way too. We we limit access to art. We limit access to culture by not representing Black folk enough. We're not even validating you know masterpieces that that exist in everyday walks of life and by by you know great artists, right? So that's what I'm talking about with the white gaze. So um, 
someone else's comment on something else. All right, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to say goodbye on Facebook Live, but I'm going to play this clip for those listening to Mic'd Up in Your Car, streaming streaming on the app or streaming at your desktop. This next clip is going to be, uh, yeah, I'm going to do Toni Morrison. So basically, uh, a few months before she passed, uh, the Toni Morrison documentary came out. And so I want to just play this clip, and it, it talks about how her art was received and how it was not always lauded. It wasn't always celebrated. And so it talks about that that challenge of her art not having critical acclaim and what that does. And then you'll hear from Tony herself. Um, this is from PBS NewsHour. Let me make sure I turn up turn up my aux. Yeah, and Wi-Fi is cooperating today. Okay, so here we go. Anders is the director of the film, which is playing nationwide. Thanks for joining us. There's so much of the delight of this film is just Toni Morrison speaking directly to the viewers. You've worked with her, you've known her. Was there a moment when you thought, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it? You know, I've known Toni for 38 years. And I think the Toni that comes through in this film is the one I know very well. In, in a way, there's, you know, there's Toni Morrison, there's Chloe Walford, her real name. And this is a bit of Chloe here. Uh, a really intimate look uh, uh, and a feel from her. She talks in the film about the the, the reaction to her second novel, Sula. Uh, the She's a Pulitzer Prize winner now. She's a Nobel Prize winner. But at the time, right. the New York Times was a little condescending. <laughs> they said she was too good a writer to restrict herself to the provincial world of black characters. Yeah. How did, how did she deal with that? How did she talk about that? You know, she was appalled, of course, and today we read that and it's just so shocking. But in those days, that was, in the New York Times, a kind of perfectly normal thing to say by a, by a reviewer. And, and, you know, Tony's whole mission, really, has been the, to kind of eliminate the white gaze, as she calls it. And she talks about the little white man sitting on your shoulder. Actually, we want to play that clip. I didn't want to speak for black people. I wanted to speak to and to be among, it's us. So the first thing I had to do was to eliminate the white gaze. Jimmy Baldwin used to talk about that. The little white man that sits on your shoulder <laughs> and checks out everything you do and say. So to knock him off and you know, you're free. Now I own the world. I mean, I can write about anything to anyone, for anyone. She also talked about writers, black writers, Ralph Ellison, um, uh, Frederick Douglass, who wrote is assuming... Okay, so I just wanted to play that clip about the, the criticism, like I said, Tony wasn't always lauded, and, um, you know, she wasn't well-received. And there's another clip, um, let me see if I earmark that. Mm, no, I'm, I'm not going to play... Yeah, I'm not going to play that one. There was another clip about, you know, the award she didn't receive in her documentary um, and how, like, she and Baldwin, there's parallels between her and James Baldwin in terms of, like, especially early on in Tony's career where she didn't receive the accolades. Like, and her work was phenomenal. It, it was it was um, celebrated overseas. It was phenomenal um, by, you know, she she was an editor before she wrote, and she was a teacher as well. And so she worked, uh, I believe, in Random House, like Little Random House, they referred to it. And so her colleagues, you had some of the best mi minds in, in, in the literary world 
who saw her work and, and like praised it, but it never reached the acclaim. She was denied the National Book Award when she wrote Beloved. And Beloved is a masterpiece, regardless of whether or not folk went out and saw it. And saw it um, in the theaters when Oprah made it back in 98. I know I went out and saw it. It, it still is it's burned on my my mind but um yeah so and so what it begs the question is that are there are there art critics right is there a world is there an environment where black art critics exist and where they can kind of um they can they can they have their opinions uh uh you know maybe uh their opinions written on main, in mainstream publications or or have their voices heard on on mainstream mediums like radio and and, and uh, you know PBS or whatnot, and I and I feel like that's a problem here. We have so much. We we love to to tout Charleston and put it up on a pedestal for being this cultural bastion. And again, and this is not me piling on more to Maura Hogan. Again, I'm not piling on more, but I think some of the 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 um, some of the questions she poses are vexing because, you know. You know, there was one piece about like we didn't make a certain list. Charleston wasn't the top city for arts, and I'm like, and it was based on this algorithm and this. Other, it was just really crazy. But I'm like, what makes us an art city shouldn't be, you know, is it, you know our, our our ability to accept art from so many different perspectives, from a multitude of perspectives, that should make us a top art city, not whether or not we fit into some sort of metric. It's metrics and numbers and and money that have gotten us in in this predicament we're in now. You know, uh, a lot of uh, credit that 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 O'Reilly, that Mayor O'Reilly got was that he saved Charleston from financial ruin. And he did. Right. I can't deny that he made the city um, more financially viable. But the means by which he chose to get there are questionable. They're not progressive. (laughs) And um, it led to a lot of the sprawl we see currently. It it leads to issues like the West Edge project that's um, that is threatening the, the folks who live in the housing projects and, and back the green is threat and threatening Berg High School and other um, black um, homeowners over there, right? West Edge. So, so like, uh, it's led to a lot of sprawl, and it's the same recipe that New Orleans used. Um, you know, they went all in for tourism. So when we went all in for tourism and went to just meet the needs of the tourists, we stopped really trying to present folks with a, a true representation of Charleston. We stopped trying to be diverse. Now, some will say, well, no, you, you've got, you know, you've got this Gullah Festival, and you've got this Sweetgrass that, and you've got the, the, the women down in the market. I want you to look at Gullah culture. I want you to look and really, really search your mind and your heart for how Gullah culture is depicted here. You tell me whether or not it feels liberative. You tell me whether or not it looks like we are uh, uh it looks always you know it doesn't have to be always strong and 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 these virile like representations but you tell me what you really feel do you feel like people are performing certain aspects of their oppression do you feel like you only can access Gullah in one area one or two areas do you feel like it's really celebrated in a, in a way or do you feel like do you think it's complicated to have the daughters of the confederacy their monument, you think it's kind of crazy to have, like, you know, women uh, uh, practicing their gullah art underneath that? Do you think that's vex- – I don't – do you think it's right for a, a little boy to be chased, no matter how mischievous he was, to be chased, apprehended, and arrested for selling a $2 rose? You you tell me how you how, how you like your gullah. You like your gullah served in a restaurant by a West Virginia native? 
Do you, do you, do you get your gullah from, from black-owned restaurants? How many black-owned restaurants can you name on the peninsula? How many? Compare that to the, to the ones that are not owned by black folk or brown folk. You tell me how, how I'm supposed to feel about how my culture is represented here. And is it enough? You tell me how many, how many plays written, directed, and staged by minority, I hate that word, let me not use that, by black and brown folk. You tell me how many plays you went to saw in Charleston that were hosted here in Charleston where you felt like you got a multiplicity of, of, of perspectives. What's your favorite art critic here in, Car in Charleston? What, what's his or her name or their name? What's your favorite food critic's name? I got Hannah Raskin. She's my favorite. Even though I didn't agree with some things, but she's good. Yeah. Hannah's the only one holding it down. I, don't, I mean, I've lived in Philadelphia. I've lived in Jersey City. I've lived in Tenton Falls. I've lived in, throughout Monmouth County. I've lived in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. I've lived in Morristown. I've, I've lived in a number of places. And in the places that I just named, there was 10 times more diversity. And that's what we don't have here. And who is pushing for that? I'm going to play the next clip. I'm going to play um, is from Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks, what I love about Bell Hooks is not, like, I, I met her at, at um, Radical Black Feminism and theories that she's formulated around that. And then what I really started to enjoy as of late, I would say, like, the latter part of 2019, I really started to enjoy her cultural criticism. And I remember I got a glimpse of that when she called Beyonce a terrorist some years ago. And I was flabbergasted. And I, I was not well-read. And I had a visceral reaction. And I'm like, how dare you defame Beyonce? But then I really got into reading um, a lot of Bell Hooks. Uh, her pop culture criticism, her movie criticism is like bomb, is, is ridiculous. And so I'm going to play this clip. And it um, talks about, I'm, I'm going to play two parts because I got to skirt around the curse words. But it talks about cultural criticism and the need for critique. And I know, again, I'm trying to weave this together, and I'm, I'm going I'm to try to pull it all together, but you'll get it. So she's talking about cultural criticism and the need to think critically. And that's what I also ask folks of Charleston who enjoy arts and culture. Do our art, do, do the people that we have um, packing out the music hall or curating the acts for food and wine or curating the acts for Intername a Festival here, do, do, are those people people that are bringing in diverse acts or are they just kind of checking off a box? Are they thinking critically before they make these decisions or are they going back to the usual suspects over and over again? So let me play this clip. Um, yeah, I still got my mic up. Uh, this is Mika Gadsden. This is mic'd up on OM. My mic is really hot. And by that, I mean I'm being real controversial today. So here's Bell Hooks talking about cultural cr criticism. The book that I've written that most tried to talk, to frame my, my concern with popular culture to a more general audience is the collection of essays, Outlaw Culture. And, and in the beginning of that book, what I say is that students from different you know, class backgrounds and ethnicities would come to my classes and I would want them to read all this metalinguistic theory and of difference and otherness and they would say, well, you know, what does this have to do with our lives? And I found continually that if I took a movie and said, well, did you go see this movie? And like, how, did, how do you think about it? And I related something very concrete in popular culture to 
the kind of theoretical paradigms that I was trying to share with them through various work. People seemed to grasp it more, and not only that, it seemed to be much more exciting and much more interesting for everybody. Because popular culture has that power in everyday life. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Whether we're talking about race or, or gender or class, popular culture is where the pedagogy is. It's where the learning is. And so I think that partially people like me who started off doing feminist theory or um, more traditional literary criticism or, or what have you begin to write about popular culture, largely because of the impact it was having as the primary pedagogical medium for masses of people globally who want to, in some way, understand the politics of difference. I mean, it's been really exciting for someone like me, both in terms of the personal um, desires I have to, be, to remain bonded with the working class culture and experience that I c came from, as, as well as the sort of southern black aspect of that, and at the same time to be a part of a, a diasporic world culture of ideas and to see how, how, how can there be a kind of interplay between all of those different forces. Popular culture is one of the sites where there can be an interplay. My own sense is that the, the most enabling resource that I can offer as a critic or an intellectual professor is the capacity to think critically about our lives. I think thinking critically is at the heart of anybody transforming their life and I really believe that a person who thinks critically, who you know, may be extraordinarily disadvantaged materially, um, can find ways to transform their lives um, that can be deeply and profoundly meaningful in the same way that someone who may be incredibly privileged materially and in crisis in their life may, be, may remain perpetually unable to resolve. I want to stop it right there. Again, this is Mika Gadsden. You're listening to Mic'd Up on OM. I'm trying to unpack, discuss, hash up, hash out um, uh, culture in the white gaze here. I use as a launching, uh, launching pad for this conversation the Charleston Home and Design Magazine's editorial decision to feature Tori and Seth Bolt, a couple who uh, who are residents of Wadnola Island, who came um, and misrepresented their interests, rep misrepresented their plans. Um, they were found to to really. Uh, uh, be very um, distrustful and, and um, they were liars and that's proven that's not even an allegation um, they lied countless times and they had since had had their permits and various things revoked by the county but um, even though they were in the midst of a over a year-long dispute with not just residents like myself but the county and they're currently involved in litigation with the county I believe um, regardless of all of that and their um, their poor reputation um, you know, the, the magazine chose to uphold them as this, um, you know, someone called her Tara from, uh, from a gone with the wind, like Tara in the treehouse, you know, um, these environmentalists that they are clearly not, um, they went against the will of the folks. We stood up, we rep, we showed up in, in force and yet, um, they're being rewarded with, uh, this PR 
this PR tour they're on currently on the cover of not just Charleston Home and Design, but SC Wildlife Magazine as well. And if SC Wildlife Magazine had any integrity and Charleston Home and Design, they would know that the people that they just promoted are completely the, the antithetical, antithetical, excuse me, to what their magazines are supposed to represent or so, or so they, I guess, or so they're supposed to be. Um, purported to to represent but um i'm here to ask the question who gets to drive the culture why are we continuously upholding folks like the bolts why do we always try to sell this image of charleston that's not only inaccurate but a complete falsehood um it's not a tree house and tree houses aren't indigenous to any uh, unless there's something i don't know um please I, I i would love to be you know cited with historical sources um but tree houses are not um that's not charleston that's not that's not wadmala island um but we continue to sell this type of rebranding of charleston that's that's just so foreign and is devoid of any real color of any real texture of voices languages different identities it's just this homogenized whitewashed version of charleston that's continuously repackaged and sold as um a plantation wedding or, um, you know, uh, antebellum, this and that. And so my question is, where are where are the critics here who challenge that? Where are the culture critics here of color? Where are the where are the queer culture critics? Say that ten times fast. Where are the black women culture critics who um, study this crap? Why are we wooing them as vehemently as we're wooing the the Volvos and the other industries and the BMWs and all that? Are we are we cultivating a space for them? Are we hostile when those voices start to speak up and say, no, this is not representative? Are we are we listening to folks who say, no, I don't think that the Palmetto Rose should be on a can of Gullah Cream Ale when these boys are literally being arrested for, and girls uh, for for practicing their practicing their culture and trying to profit from it? Um, is that cool for white-owned companies to profit off Gullah and profit off of Palmetto Rose making when they, when the, the communities that created it can't? Um, so who is driving that force? Who is, who is speaking up? Who is saying, hey, I went to the Jericho Brown reading at the Freeverse Festival that was curated by Marcus Amaker. I went to that festival. Let me tell you what I found um, from a black perspective, what I found great about that, about that art. You know, who's doing that? Are we still just upholding systems that, that kind of take those voices out of the discussion altogether? And we continuously create the Tory Bolts who think that they can come down and act with impunity. Las Olas on Upper King that can continue to criminalize black youth. Why are we pushing? And this is not a new phenomenon. If you read anything, shout out to Nick Butler. But if you read anything or you listen to anything um, about the history of Charleston, we know that there always have been ordinances and rules and regulations designed to push off unwanted folk off the peninsula or out of Charleston. Maryville had its annex, had its annex revoked for no reason, right? So let me tie it back into some other things that I found. So while I was researching the show about black cultures and critic, and I stopped the bell hooks piece, but if you listen to Miked Up on SoundCloud or iTunes, I'll have links to that, uh, to all the clips I played today. Um, but she talks, I'm not even going to play the second half because I'm rambled too much in the first half of the show. But basically she talks about the need um, for, for cultural criticism. Um, I found a great article. It was written by a Shantae, uh, Shantae Robinson, Robinson, and uh, it was uh, on the website Black Art in America. And again, I'll, I'll include the link. And her, the title of her 
um, article that she wrote that she wrote this a couple of years ago and it's called from Negro art to post black art black art criticism is essential so she was she was uh, she begged the question too where are all the black art critics and the need for that and how when when certain art critics aren't around certain art goes undocumented there's whole chunks of hip-hop that aren't documented because people didn't see it as a viable uh, art form but yet today hip-hop is the number one most popular genre of music in the world right and so um if we don't like like in case in point my friend benny had um you know he recorded his album live at the at the music hall to me just that sentence alone not even knowing what kind of genre of music he played i as a cultural critic would want to be in that house just to witness what this is who's recording an album live oh it's hip-hop recorded live how that's gonna sound he's gonna have oh he's gonna have a band you know there were no culture writers at a water albums recording I remember asking him that, asking others, the, the other um, creatives involved with, cre- uh, you know, making the show. I'm like, yo, w- were there any press? You know, was anyone there live tweeting? And to my knowledge to this day, I've never seen any any press from anyone that was from the uh, outside of like the, you know, shout out City Paper. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's City Paper staff in there. But from like your Post and Courier, your Pulitzer Prize winning Post, um, Post and Courier, I didn't see that. And I know it's because the priority wasn't there. It wasn't Antebellum. It wasn't Spoleto. It wasn't Food and Wine. It wasn't um, Seaweed. You know, so no one was there. And that's what happens generation after generation after generation to um, to black artists. I'm going to play now one clip I got to play. Um, I am a huge fan of N.K. Jemison. Um, for those who don't know, N.K. Jemison is a sci-fi writer, like, just dope. She's a, a New York Times best-selling author. Um, she she writes speculative fiction and short stories and novels. She um, she's just she's amazing. But a few years ago, she won this prestigious writing award um, for sci-fi. And as you probably know, that there's not that many African American women in sci-fi, and it's not by accident. Um, and so that's my whole point, right? Like when you don't represent, when you don't uphold these people, they we stay out of it. Wherever there's an absence of any identity in any art form, best believe there was a law regulation or a rule in place that made it illegal for those people to participate. So N.K. Jemison a couple of years ago won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. And she I think she won it consecutive years. She got so much pushback from her white male peers. And so this was her acceptance speech. It's amazing. And I'm going to make sure I stop it before she says the S word. Okay, here, I mean, yeah, here we go. N.K. Jemison. Um, all right, so uh, uh, let me get to the speech. Uh, this has been a hard year, hasn't it? Uh, a hard few years, a hard century. Um, for some of us, things have always been hard. And I wrote the Broken Earth Trilogy to speak to that struggle um, and what it takes to live, let alone thrive, in a world that seems determined to break you. Uh, A world of people who constantly question your competence, your relevance, your very existence. Um, I get a lot of questions about where the themes of the Broken Earth Trilogy come from. I think it's pretty obvious that I'm drawing on the human history of structural oppression, as well as my feelings about this moment in American history What may be less obvious, though, is how much of the story derives from my feelings about science fiction and fantasy. Then again, science fiction and fantasy are microcosms of the wider world, in no way rarefied from the world's pettiness or prejudice. 
But another thing that I tried to touch on with the Broken Earth Trilogy is that life in a hard world is never just the struggle. Life is family, blood, and found. Life is those allies who prove themselves worthy by actions and not just talk. Life means celebrating every victory, no matter how small. So as I stand here before you, beneath these lights, um, I want you to remember that 2018 is also a good year. This is a year in which records have been set. Uh, a year in which even the most privileged blinded of us have been forced to acknowledge that the world is broken and needs fixing. And that is a good thing. Stop texting me. Um, and that is a good thing. <laughs> because acknowledging the problem is the first step towards fixing it. I look to science fiction and fantasy as the aspirational drive of the zeitgeist. We creators are the engineers of possibility. And as this genre finally, however grudgingly, acknowledges that the dreams of the marginalized matter and that all of us have a future, so will go the world. Soon, I hope. Very soon. And yes, there will be naysayers. I know that I am here on this stage accepting this award for pretty much the same reason as every previous Best Novel winner because I work my ass off. Um, I have poured my pain onto paper when I could not afford therapy. I have studied works of literature that range widely and dig deeply to learn what I could and refine my voice. I have written a million words of crap and probably a million more of meh. And beyond that, I have smiled and nodded while well-meaning magazine editors advised me to tone down my allegories and my anger. I didn't. <laughs> I have gritted my teeth while an established professional writer went on a 10-minute tirade at me, basically as a proxy for all black people, for mentioning underrepresentation in the sciences. I have kept writing even though my first novel, The Killing Moon, was initially rejected on the assumption that only black people would ever possibly want to read the work of a black writer. I have raised my voice to talk back over fellow panelists who tried to talk over me about my own damn life. I have fought myself and the little voice inside me that constantly, still, whispers that I should just keep my head down and shut up and let the real writers talk. But this is the year in which I get to smile at all of those naysayers every single mediocre, insecure wannabe who fixes their mouth to suggest that I do not belong on this stage, that people like me cannot possibly have earned such an honor, and that when they win, it's meritocracy, but when we win, it's identity politics, I get to smile at those people and lift a massive, shining, rocket-shaped finger. <laughs> That's how we are going. <laughs> Okay, I'm going. To, I'm going to stop it there. In the interest of time, but yeah, that's N.K. Jemison. That's my girl. I love her. Shout out to everyone still holding it down with me. I'm about to wrap it up. This is mic'd up on on radio. I'm live today in the studio. I'm talking about the white gaze and culture here in Charleston. Um, what drives it? Why? Why don't we have more representation and culture here? Why don't we have more critic or critical voices that can view art from uh, uh, a multitude of of, of identities? Um, that can internalize what that 
it can contextualize what we're seeing, what we're bringing, what we're fostering here in Charleston. Um, how white is our cannon at the Gilliard? How white is our cannon um, at, at Seaweed? How white is the cannon in terms of the art that we tend to bring in? Is it just enough? And this is shout out to the homies. Is it just enough to to enlist the services and the and the artistry and the, and the hard work of Marcus Amaker? Um, is it is it just enough to do that, or do we need to start wooing and, and cultivating and raising up and lifting up other voices that help shape art here? Um, you know, I I'm, I would live for the day in the culinary arts where I would see a white woman, oh, excuse me, a black woman that heads a major kitchen. Uh, here in Charleston, but what do we see? This, this, just this week alone, we just saw a story written by Hannah Raskin about a, a, a African American uh, chef who was getting paid nine dollars an hour at a high-profile restaurant. Nine dollars an hour. This, this is how we treat those who drive the culture here that are are not white and male. And and it just his compensation is not even the worst part of the article how he was treated, how his, how, his, how his voice was marginalized, how he was silenced. So we need to ask these questions about how we, um, what type of culture do we really want here in Charleston? Do we just want a monolithic, homogenized, safe version, or do we want to, to, to show people a fair representation of art and culture here? On um, the last note, I'm going um, to wrap up um, and make way for the next show. But um, I want y'all to shout out to my homie Cyrus Buffum. That's my that's my road dog. That's my co-conspirator, my my getaway driver, my accomplice. Um, uh, Cyrus gifted me a book called Against the Odds: African American Artists and the Harmon Foundation. The Harmon Foundation has done some amazing work here, here in Charleston historically. Um, namely, they gifted African American youth a whole park over in Back the Green. Um, I'm going to read really quickly from the insert, the inside uh, cover of Against the Odds. And I want you all to just research the Harmon Foundation, their work during the Harlem Renaissance, and their work here in Charleston. Against the Odds is the first major exhibition to examine the the pioneering support of African-American artists by the Harmon Foundation during the 1920s and 1930s. Established by real, excuse me, established by real estate baron William Harmon in 1922, the foundation created and administered a number of innovative public programs, including awards for distinguished achievement among Negroes. It awarded cash prizes to black artists and organized a series of annual ju- um, juried exhibitions held from 1928 through 1933. These shows toured uh, cities across the United States and provided national exposure for many African-American artists. Now, I'm going to stop it there. You see, the Harmon Foundation is, is, is what I want to see. I want to see more Harmon Foundations pop up here in Charleston. And I want to see, see culture critics. Um, you know, Spoleto, every year, uh, the Post and Courier brings down uh, journalism students from Syracuse University to cover Spoleto. I want to see black journalism schools. I want to see brown journalism schools. I want to see from uh, schools from other areas, not just Syracuse, especially after Syracuse's year last year. We know they, they made the headlines a, a few times with their racism issues. I'd love to see institutions like the Post and Courier seek out aggressively voices of people who don't just look all, all monolithic, that are not all white, that are not all male, that are not all heterosexual. I want to push the culture here in Charleston. I want these, these gatekeepers... I want these gatekeepers at the at the at the newspaper 
on news. I want to see more representation. And in our schools, we need to make sure our canon is representative of the students who attend these schools. And not only that, not just that, because if it's a predominantly white school and you're learning about predominantly white uh, a culture, that's a problem. We need to make sure that they see the world when they learn. When our kids learn, they need to see the world. And they need to be open to that so they're not hostile and they don't treat a Gullah Rosemaker like a foreign entity. When we encounter them, we know how to talk to them. We know how to communicate to people more. When we're around and exposed to other art and other culture and other languages, we become familiar with it. And that's what we need to start upholding. Not the Tory Bolts of the world, not the Seth Bolts of the world, so to Charleston Home and Design Magazine, do better. To Reverie Brewing, do better. Post and Courier, do better. You're doing all right sometimes. Do better. But these institutions have to do better. Stop profiting off of Gullah culture. Stop having us perform our oppression in these passive ways and start celebrating our, our, our rebellion. Start celebrating the, the black power movement that emerged after civil rights. Start celebrating the, the full complexity of history here, history and culture, not just the bad things, not just the, the raucous things, but the amazing things, the full multiplicity of all of our art and culture here. Until next time, all my Gullah Geechee descendants and whatnot, y'all stay black. Everybody else, let's do better. <laughs>